There's a podcast I think our listeners would want to know about. It's called Seen on Radio. The show has received much acclaim for its deep and engaging dives into the history and the very structure of American society. How can we see society more clearly so we can be more effective in changing it? Seen on Radio's two recent documentary series, Seeing White and Men, have explored racism and sexism in eye-opening ways. Check out Seen on Radio. That's S-C-E-N-E on Radio from the Center for Documentary Studies and PRX. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm Mila Atmos. How can protest help us protect our communities? That's the question for our guest on Future Hindsight today, Dave Archambault II. He's a former tribal chairman of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe in North Dakota and was instrumental in the Dakota Access Pipeline protests in 2016. He's currently a senior fellow at the University of Colorado First Peoples Worldwide Project, which is run under the American Indian Law Program and Leeds Business School. Dave was elected tribal chairman in October 2013 and had the opportunity to meet with President Obama at that time because his sister worked at the White House. When he met the president, he asked him to not sign off on the Keystone Access Pipeline that was meant to start from the tar sands in Canada and go through ancestral homelands of the Great Sioux Nation. And for this reason, among others, the president did not sign off. But shortly thereafter, the Dakota Access Pipeline was proposed. And much to his surprise, the scoping and planning had already been done by the time the tribe heard about it through the Tribal Historic Preservation Office. Dave immediately went to work and started the conversation with the Army Corps of Engineers, requiring them to abide by the laws and engage in meaningful consultation. That didn't happen. The leadership of the Sioux Nation and the leadership of the Corps of Engineers did not meet In fact, the Army Corps of Engineers approved and released a draft environmental assessment. At this time, Dave discovers that the pipeline is less than 500 feet from his nation and crossing underneath the Missouri River. It crosses through ancestral and treaty lands and areas with sacred significance. In other words, the Sioux Nation was absolutely ignored. In response, They started making the rounds in Washington, D.C. They met with the Department of Energy, the Department of Interior, the U.S. Army Civil Work, the Advisory Council Historic Preservation, the EPA, and finally the Army Corps of Engineers. They advocated from 2014 to January 2016 to no avail. The word at that time was that the pipeline was coming through. At a local district meeting, Dave showed the community all that he had done in Washington. But since it clearly didn't look like it was enough, some of those who attended the meeting decided to have a ceremony to ask the spirits what they can do. In the ceremony, the spirit said, with peace and prayer, you'll stop the pipeline. With violence and war, the pipeline will go underneath the river. So from that moment on, there was a spirit camp to pray. Young tribal members walked across the Missouri River in Mobile, South Dakota, in protest and asked to be heard. They delivered a letter to the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers in Omaha, Nebraska. 
they started a national campaign on social media called Res Pecked Our Water. Then they put together a petition of 160,000 for the Army Corps of Engineers in Washington, again asking them not to permit this pipeline because it threatens their future, the environment, and their sacred places. In July of 2016, despite all their efforts, the Corps of Engineers approved of the environmental assessment and initiated a pre-construction notice a few weeks later. And that's when everything began to escalate. In the beginning, there were maybe 100 protesters at the construction site, and law enforcement was there. Slowly, the crowd started growing. In August, there was a rumor that the construction crew hit some sacred bones, and a commotion started. When Dave saw a woman walk behind the police line, standing on the road as she was trying to stop construction trucks coming down, he went over to help her. That's when he was arrested, strip-searched, and thrown in jail. When Dave got out of jail, the spirit camp began to grow truly fast. Here, he tells us how it started to snowball. After my arrest, I had a chairman call me from Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe saying that we're bringing 200 people tomorrow. And then I had another chairman from the Ogallala Sioux Tribe call and say we're bringing a bus with 300 people. So overnight, this began to blossom and grow. And there's no way to control or manage something when it gets so big. Days felt like weeks, weeks felt like months, months felt like years. There's so much going on. And there's no way you can organize, there's no way you can control uh, something that grows that fast. So it was organic and it took a life of its own. And uh, I give the credit for the protest to our youth to get everybody engaged, uh, including elders, middle age. It's when they start to speak up, that's when people start to come together and, and get engaged. It sounds like the youth really started to mobilize your community. And I think that's not covered very much in the traditional media. No. Uh, and I think what happened, too, if you were to talk to the youth, they would say, um, our movement got hijacked. And we stayed consistent with our message with the tribe. We want a peaceful and prayerful stance. We welcome and we thank everybody for support, and we welcome them to come. And we're going to try to accommodate best we can, but we ask for things. No alcohol, no drugs, no weapons, no violence, and come in prayer. And when that was happening, it was one of the most surreal, powerful things that anybody could imagine. Like, and words can't explain, but I think everybody who was uh, partaking at that moment knew that there was something special happening. So when it was hijacked, what happened? When you have 10,000 people and you have over a dozen different organizations with their intent and their purpose, everybody is going to go in different directions. And sometimes it's not always the same intent as the local people had initiated or started. There were different incentives for different organizations. Right. It's difficult to have one united front when you have people coming from all over and everybody has maybe a slightly different agenda from each other uh, in terms of organization to organization. Although it sounds like the impetus for the influx of all of the support that you received was your arrest. And I don't think it was the impetus for everything. I just think that um, it blossomed into this thing that was, I think, um, spiritual mm -hmm. and significant. How important was that to stand together, camp together, pray together? 
it's it's very important for any movement and i call it a movement because you you have protests and then you have movements and when there's a movement it is a catalyst for something to change in the future and you you don't know when that change is going to happen and if we were to look back 50 years from now we could see it was inevitable the way that this government has treated indigenous peoples in this nation has been uh, sad. It's been disrespectful, and it, and it only got worse. And the fossil fuel industry preys on areas where they can take advantage. People are starting to say, our voices need to be heard when something's not fair. And it's inevitable that it happened within Indian country because of all the wrongs uh, that have been committed to our nations. It's uh, no different than a hundred years ago, no different than 200 years ago. And it's not something that happened in the past. It's something that continues to happen. And this nation, we would say, is a perpetrator who is allowed to continue to commit the same crimes. And it's perpetrator because of the way the laws are written. And the laws protect the fossil fuel industries whenever they come to encroach on our human rights and our environmental rights and our indigenous rights. It just so happened that it happened at Standing Rock while I was the, the chairman of the tribe. That leads me to another point where, how did I become the chairman of the tribe? Yes, right. tell us more about that. I grew up in Indian country. My dad was an educator. My mom was an educator. I was fortunate to have two parents. I lived on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. I lived on the Standing Rock Indian Reservation. So as I'm coming to a point where I have to make my own decisions, I have my own responsibilities. My intent is to do something so that I can help our people. And so I become an advocate for my people and I become someone who wants to do things to set examples so others can follow. I got my education and I started a business. It was the first business on Standing Rock that was owned by a tribal member. I also worked for Sitting Bull College, teaching uh, business administration to students, helping entrepreneurs, um, and working on workforce development. And because of those three things, I was able to see the environment that was there that wasn't helping business development. And where it took me was to uh, tribal politics, and I became a tribal council. And I, I came in with my eyebrows wide open and excited, saying we're going to make a difference. But it's 17 other members on the Tribal Council with different agendas, and it's not always easy to create change right away. And so when I left after four years, my eyebrows were touching because I was frustrated. And then I thought, well, maybe the chairman can change. And even if I don't get elected, at least I can say I tried. And so I ran for Tribal Chairman, and then I got elected. This is important because I consider myself an advocate for my nation, for my community. I consider myself an advocate for my family, trying to create a better environment for everybody that lives in that local spot. And being in, in that advocate role as a tribal government, tribal chairman, we try to change laws, policies, regulations, the rules, so that it's better for our membership it's slow moving, it takes decades before things can make change and make a difference. On the other side, you have 
activists who are doing the same thing, but they are doing it in defiance of a government. And they have a common cause, whatever that cause may be. And that cause is national. And it's it's at a macro level. But when you have an advocate and you have an activist come together, like what happened at Standing Rock, when we come together, it elevates my cause and their cause. Our causes are raised. And advocates and activists don't always see the same thing. Uh, a lot of times activists are protesting against advocates, protesting against the government. But in this case, we came together, and then when this event, this movement, this moment in time ends, we separate again. Activists and advocates are, are apart, and we slowly are trying to make a difference in our own wheelhouse. So looking back on this experience from working together with activists at that time at Standing Rock, what was in your mind your most salient learning that you're carrying with you now? It was easy when we first started because we knew exactly who we were up against. We were up against the federal government. We were up against our state representatives, congressmen and the two senators. We were up against the governor of North Dakota. We are up against the oil industry, the extractive industry, the pipeline industry. The unions thought we were trying to stop jobs, but we weren't trying to argue with unions. The other thing that we realized is that the laws are flawed. So we're up against the federal laws, and who makes the federal laws? It's Congress. But where do they get their direction? They get their direction from the industry, from the corporations, and, and they're incentivized by money. And so it's safe to say the Koch brothers are the ones who influence the way laws are created so that it benefits the extractive industry. We're able and we're, we're willing to go up against something like that. And we were successful. In December 2016, so under the Obama administration, we said, yes, we need to stop, pump on the brakes. We're not going to permit this until we do an environmental impact statement, which was a huge victory for us. Because then we would be able to demonstrate everything that had happened to our nations every time an infrastructure project encroaches on our homelands. Mm-hmm. So that was huge. It was big. But then... It was at this point that President Trump was elected into office, and within one week, everything changed. He signed a presidential memorandum to state that the environmental assessment will suffice to move forward with the pipeline, which it did. I should note here that an environmental assessment is something that we can assess by looking at the environment. It's like saying, the sky's blue. An environmental impact statement is something else entirely, which is the thing that the tribal nations were looking for. An environmental impact statement is actually a deep study about how the environment will be impacted by any project. At this point, Dave's personal reputation took a big hit, as he'll explain here. When things didn't go the way they were supposed to, the blame comes back. And I was accused of having a house in Florida, getting 30 million, having a house in Bismarck, all these false accusations were coming up. And, and I could 
honestly say that I never benefited in one way from this movement, and I never wanted anything. I didn't want a dime out of this, and I stayed clear of any resources that were coming in, and I allowed our tribal council to make the decisions on what to do with the resources, so it wasn't to gain anything, only to protect our future generations and our sacred places. What is the most important takeaway that I got from this uh, movement, the events that happened at Standing Rock, and and that is to stay grounded no matter what. And uh, when things are not good, you always have your family. You are super passionate about indigenous rights and the rights of the nations, and clearly you have not stopped your work there, and you're working at the University of Colorado. What is the work that you do that advances the rights and the treaties and the heritage, really? So it was interesting. The reason why University of Colorado came in during the protests, I probably was approached by a, a hundred different legal experts. They would come and say, this is how you stop the pipeline. And not all of them were legitimate. And so we uh, were working with the American Indian Law Program at the University of Colorado and using the law students to actually vet any ideas, which was really helpful. The other component was Rebecca Adamson had started a program, nonprofit project about 10 years prior, and it was called First Peoples Worldwide. And what they did was they encouraged free prior informed consent around the world with indigenous peoples when their uh, resources were being threatened. Um, they also did a lot of work with divestment. And so when we started to work with them, they had a blueprint on how to approach financial institutions, banks, and they had training on the rights that we have. We worked with them in trying to get in touch with all the banks that were invested in the Dakota Access Pipeline. Uh, I think we had 13 of those banks get on the phone and we would give monthly updates on what's happening to the banks. We asked them to divest, and three of them withdrew and divested. And these three banks are from uh, other countries. None of the U.S. banks uh, withdrew. But that work is very important. And that what it is is it's engaging corporations with indigenous communities. Uh, when these two don't engage, there's a potential social cost. And if you ignore the social cost, it's going to escalate the financial risks for not just the company, but the, the shareholders of the financial institutions. And I was able to come on and, and as a senior fellow and continue to help that work uh, of investment, building awareness for investors and, and building capacity for tribes on how to engage with companies. And not only that, but look at shareholder advocacy. Everybody pays attention to the environment and everybody pays attention to the government. But a lot of times the social cost is ignored. And so uh, we did a study on the Dakota Access Pipeline. We looked at what was the stock price of energy transfer partners prior to August 2016. What was the average for standards and pours of uh, S&P 500? And then at the end of everything, where is S&P and where is uh, EPT? And they lost 20%. And I remember meeting with the Dakota Access Pipeline company, Joy Mahamud, and I said, you know, we're going to resist this. And he said, 
that comes with the territory. We build pipelines all the time. It's part of the business. We're going to meet resistance. And I shared our history of infrastructure projects and the effects that has on our tribal nations and our people. Then he gave me um, an overview saying, you have nothing to worry about because this pipe's going to be 35 inches in diameter. It's going to have a three-fourth quarter inch thick wall. It's going to be 90 feet below the river. We both shared information with each other and then went our own way. A year later, I meet with Energy Transfer Partners, the parent company of the Coal Access Pipeline, uh, CEO Kelsey Warren, and I share the same information with him. And he says, if I knew this a year ago, we wouldn't be in this situation. If we engage with the right people, the head of the companies, the decision makers, if we engage with the shareholders or the, the financial institution early, then there's a better understanding on both sides. And some infrastructure projects may be welcomed by tribal or our indigenous peoples, and some may not. But neither side should wait until it's too late, until there's too much investment. It's um, trying to address the ignorance that exists. And the problem with this whole scenario is that corporations have the resources. So when they want to engage, they'll do it. Where tribal nations don't have the the resources, they don't have the capacity. So we want to build that up and level the playing field so that both understand what's happening. It sounds from everything that you have just told me that you have done an immense amount of work uh, in Washington and with the corporations, with the tribal nations. And I think none of that really comes through very clearly when you look at any of the articles that you read or footage that you see about the peak of the protests at the Dakota Access Pipeline. And it's really fascinating because you're giving me a huge whole picture that is so comprehensive and holistic that none of us know about, or at least it's very difficult to find. So for people in the United States, uh, non-Native Americans, what would you like to say to the audience that would get them engaged in having better relations with Indian nations and also protect your rights? You know, I think it's happening organically. I think there is interest in indigenous peoples and the concepts and philosophies that have been shared with us through our ancestors. And so, and, and it's so simple. The stance at Standing Rock was for water. Everybody could relate. Everybody in the whole world could relate because without it, we wouldn't There's no be life. So... The, the concept and, and the philosophies and the, the reality is something that we had forever. And it's, it's so basic. And we try to complicate things. We try to use science. But if you get into indigenous communities and you, and you start to pay attention to the way things are, it's so basic. It's so, so simple. And in our culture, if we were to look out, I can't do it here because we're in New York City and I can't see anything, but if I was at home and I looked out the window, what I would see is the prairie. And if you see the prairie, and if you see movement, we would say, there's something there. And that means that whatever is there, when it moves, it has a nari, it has a spirit, it has a soul, it has a life. And if it has a soul and a spirit and life, then Another word is midakyase. That means that we are all related. 
to everything that moves, to everything that has a spirit. And we should treat them with respect. And everything that has a spirit needs four things in order for it to live. It needs the sun, it needs the earth, it needs the air, and it needs water. Those are the four elements that, that are in every indigenous community uh, ceremony. Now, if you were to, to say, let's look at an a infrastructure project where we are going to take this resource, say water, and we're going to develop a project with it. That's the problem is, would you call your mother a resource? Or would you call her a source of life? She brought you here and she cares for you. That's the same relationship. So if you start to think about water as not a resource, but a source of life, then it makes the most sense that you respect it. And it, it can still be used in a project, but with respect and we don't abuse it. Indigenous communities have been saying this to everybody for the last 500 years, but nobody's listening. But now it's necessary if it's standing up against the pipeline because water is life, it's necessary. And everybody has to come together and agree to that. Well, on that note, looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? I see a lot of um, technology evolving to where we can get away from fossil fuels. The way solar, the, the sun, can offer the same amount of electricity that uh, oil can, the way that the wind blowing can offer the same amount of electricity. And there's other new technologies that are coming that are not perfected yet, but are on their way. That'll take us into another era. But I'm just um, hoping it's not too late. I do too. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for your leadership. And thank you for showing us how to do this. Yeah, you're welcome. I was so surprised to discover all of the steps that the Sioux Nation had undertaken before the Dakota Access Pipeline protest made the front pages. I was also surprised to learn about the varying factions who showed up at the camp in the end, each with a different agenda. And finally, how frustrating it must have been to be an elected leader, in this case, tribal chairman, despite having engaged in the full breadth of advocacy for his constituents. At the same time, I was so excited by learning about the spiritual aspect that Dave Archambault described. Everything was so inspirational and so idealistic. Just in the retelling, I could feel the movement as being a change agent for the future. The remaining questions that I have are about our attitudes towards Indian nations. When will we stop breaking treaties against Indian nations? When will we actually recognize the rights of the indigenous? I wonder what it will take. If you want to take action for indigenous rights and safe water, go to our website, futurehindsight.com, for more information. Is the end of protest as we know it the beginning of our future? On the next episode of Future Hindsight, our guest is Micah White. He's a lifelong activist who co-created Occupy Wall Street, a global social movement that spread to 82 countries while also an editor at Adbusters magazine. He's the author 
of The End of Protest, A New Playbook for Revolution, and also the co-founder of Activist Graduate School, an online school taught by and for experienced activists. Obviously, we did a lot of great things. We kicked off a whole wave of social unrest. We trained a whole new generation of activists. We made protests cool again. It was constructive failure in the sense that it, it did teach us something about the limitations of contemporary protests. And I think that activists can learn from the, the failure of Occupy Wall Street and they can use that knowledge to kind of make protests work again. Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Feda. The associate producer is Miriam Tsumbu. Find us online at futurehindsight.com and listen to us through your favorite streaming services. Mm-hmm.